Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Up, up and away. Prices are on the move again, dear listener. Latest official figures, such as they are, tell us that producer prices rose 7.3% for the month of June. Consumer prices were up 5.4% over the same period, marking the biggest CPI gain since August of 2008. Core producer prices were up 5.6% year over year. Where to from here, you might be wondering. Hmm, to help answer that question, I caught up with Dan Denning earlier this week. We talked about what's behind the rising prices, the flat-out lies the feds are spinning, and what you can do to avoid the fallout of their hubristic undertakings. All that and more in my conversation with Dan, up next. Mate, so how was uh, it? We're in town for the for the ball game on the weekend? Yes, uh, we had decided to go when the news came that Major League Baseball had removed the game from Atlanta for political reasons, I guess. And I thought, I like baseball and I like cricket as well, but I like baseball and I'll never have a chance to, to see all these great players in one place. So we went, but it was a very strange vibe because the game was on a Tuesday afternoon and also because a few days prior, the police had announced that they had made a bust in a hotel room nearby and found something like 16 firearms and a thousand rounds of ammunition. Oh, wow. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I so I think people were a little <laughs> concerned that it was like another Las Vegas in the making. And, and the all-star game is weird anyway, because it's not two teams the home team versus the away team. And it's not a championship game or a playoff game. It's a mid season competition with no impact on anybody. Um, and the fans are from all over the country. So the, the vibe was, uh, was subdued, but it was interesting because it was the first gathering I'd been to of 50,000 people in sort of the post well, not post COVID, we can't be post COVID with the Delta variant, but there were no restrictions on social distancing or, requirements for face masks so it was interesting from that point of view all right so for for an outsider or someone who leans more to the <laughs> to the cricket um cricket fandom what this is a game where the players just from all other teams the best of the best kind of get together is it something like that to face off what's yeah it's an exhibition game where the players who <laughs> have been voted by the the fans as the best performing players of the first half of the season play uh, a nine inning game oh, okay. uh, as a reward for their excellence or their popularity in some cases. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. It seems like that would be kind of a moment for unity uh, and everybody just getting together to celebrate a pretty, you know, a, a great American ball game tradition. You know, it, it is traditionally, they call it the Midsummer Classic and I did have a hot dog and I had some <laughs> peanuts and Cracker Jacks, but everything in America today is, is on a knife's edge between one political view and the other. So mm. on the one hand, as you recall, when, when we went to the army Navy game with, with you and Anya back in 2014, it was, a, it was the sporting event was highly militarized by the presentation of the flag and a color guard and a flyby. So you get that where we got the space force did the flyby for this game because they are based in Colorado. That's where the headquarters for the space force is based. Mm. And, um, you know, the flag is great and, and, uh, I, I don't have too much of a problem with that because it doesn't, you know, it's, this, it's not a commercial broadcast for world domination as much as it is, <laughs> you know, for the 4th of July. But, but on the other hand, everything is in, in the lens of COVID and or equity, equality, racial justice and pro sports leagues, like most other major institutions in America, from the boardroom to the Fed to Congress, now feel like they have to publicly be seen as being virtuous and whether you want to use the word proactive about whatever the belief or cause du jour is. So there's always this weird tension between traditional non-political things. And then people who say, no, everything's political. You're either an ally or you're not, or you're either anti, actively anti-racist or you're racist. So, you know, right. <laughs> everything is just weird, but, uh, but it was expensive too. I know that you had um, dinner in Chicago and we're shocked with the prices, but you know, the all-star game is the land of the $10 beer anyway, but it was the $12 right. hot dog and the $15 beer. So Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, I wasn't sure if that was just because I was, uh, I'd been spoiled by the prices of Argentine uh, steak in my most of the time home of uh, Buenos Aires. But yeah, I definitely got some sticker shock uh, when heading out to to dine in, um, in, in the second city. But um, yeah, I can't help but I can't help but feel like the the whole landscape is much more politicized than it was. Uh, even just a couple of years ago uh, when I was up here last. But I guess that, if I'm not mistaken, that was the whole reason that the MLB moved the game out to uh, Colorado in the first place, right? It was a voting, um, something to do with voter, a new voter legislation in, in Atlanta or in Georgia. I think that's right. I, don't quote me, but I believe the, yeah. the objection voiced by some people was that the Georgia legislature had passed a, a voter registration law that they claim was discriminatory and uh, it was designed to suppress mail-in ballots and was largely racial in nature because it would affect black people mostly. I don't know, but you know, that's the, I choose to view all these things. And I think you can view them now as a, as a kind of contest between people who would like everything to be centralized and politicized and people who are, who won't, who don't want that, which doesn't mean that there aren't things happening that, that, um, that, you know, that are, well, I don't know how I should say it. I, I guess, I mean, it doesn't mean that there aren't problems, but, but everything now, I, I put this in the lens of COVID Joel, where 
I saw Jacinda Ardern, our favorite New Zealand prime minister, <laughs> give a press conference where she said that we, the government, will tell you what you need to know because we are, and I think the quote was, the sole source of truth. <laughs> wow. And Direct from the Ministry of Truth <laughs> itself. <laughs> she said it completely unironically, and it was in response to the idea that the reason vaccination rates hadn't been higher in other places, or in, in, in New Zealand in particular, I think among uh, indigenous communities, is the persistence of social media myths, fake news, conspiracy theories that, that might actually require, according to some people now, the government to, to monitor text messages to mm. make sure that people weren't, <clears throat> weren't perpetuating falsehoods. But I thought this is definitely, I thought last year was a high watermark for the self-belief of, of centralizers and elitists and plutocrats and bureaucrats. But if anything, it seems like they've just gone from strength to strength in the belief that the only people capable of responding to uh, any threat are the government people in charge. And that if you don't go along with that, whether it's because you disagree with monetary policy or you disagree with vaccinations or you disagree with lockdowns, then not only are you just disagreeing, but you're possibly an extremist and a mm -hmm. threat. And that, right. that, that concerns me. You know, we had this little quiet period where I thought we might be getting back to something more normal. And now I'm convinced we're about to go to a whole new level of stupid. Yeah, I I kind of I kind of get that sense as things as things uh, as things continue to go kind of uh, haywire. I like that that uh, differentiation between those who would seek to centralize any and all um, matters, political, economical, social, uh, etc., and those who would prefer to have you know more more localized solutions to those things. But it reminded me. Um, I was reading just now your latest edition of uh, of the Bonner Denning letter, and and you you started off with uh, with the new private space race. I'm sure everybody knows by now, but we have you know the the world's three richest men or three of the world's richest men who are blasting off into space. Um, and it, it's interesting the way that that debate has been framed, or the way that that uh, that this phenomenon has been framed in that. I've seen a lot of people on, you know, social media and just sort of, um, you know, taxi cab uh, anecdotal conversations complaining that, you know, the the haves that is, you know, the uber rich are leveraging their their capital in order to do things that the rest of us will never uh, potentially be able to do. But it's viewed as the kind of, well, these guys are spending $10 billion of their own private money to get off the planet and and explore space that's not okay but just 50 or 60 years ago when you know the original great space race was on and it was a very much an ideologically motivated race between the world's two superpowers at the time the US and and the cosmonauts uh, over in Russia it was however many hundreds of billions of dollars worth of public monies were being used to finance that um, particular race that was seen as as you know, very important. It was a, it was seen as something that was unifying the country, no doubt over in, in the USSR uh, at the time as it was uh, in the USA here. But that kind of 
you know, that kind of collective project, that big centralized project seemed to be something that, you know, that, uh, that people, I don't know, maybe they get misty eyed for it and harken back, uh, you know, with some sense of nostalgia now, but I, I feel like those people might not have paid enough attention to what happened in 1989 when the ultimate <laughs> apex of centralized, uh, economies went, uh, went belly up, but that's, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting background metaphor for, for those two ideological struggles, I think. Well, and I, th- I think that's exactly right. And, and it's still with us because what you really have is, is who gets to set values in society or who gets to, to determine what your priorities should be. Mm-hmm. And, and in the one camp, there's people who've basically always been saying, well, I, I get to set that I'm an individual. My rights are, uh, given by God or nature and the government uh, is there to protect those rights. But, but I, but those are my choices, even if you don't agree with them. And then what we saw this week, you see it time and again, uh, and you see it in, in multiple different places. So I'll give you three examples. One, you see Christine Lagarde in, uh, in Europe, the chairman of the European central bank, making the absurd claim that central bank money is the safest form of money. And because consumers are, increasingly eschewing the use of cash, the European Central Bank is going to increase its acceleration or it's going to accelerate its rollout of a central bank digital currency. And so they, you know, cash is a bearer instrument. Trans, the transactions you make are private. And that is the case also with some, some uh, cryptocurrencies. So what, what has happened? Well, people like Lagarde and central banks have said, that's no good because we don't know what you're doing with that money and you might be doing something bad with it. And by the way, our money is safe for whatever that means, by the way. I have no right. idea what that means. It's just, just demonstrably false in many different ways. But it, that's not the only example. You know, you get another example of Jerome Powell going in front of the U.S. Congress and being asked, why are you inflating asset prices when real, wa- when real wages and employment are stagnating? Aren't you exacerbating inequality, which increases not just income inequality, but political instability. Like you're making things worse. And right. he said, well, inflation's not a problem. Well, if you're Jerome Powell and you make between 50 and hundred million bucks a year, or let, that's your net worth because you own financial assets, then the price of meat isn't a problem. Whether or not you get a reservation at the best steak restaurant in New York, maybe that's a problem, but he's probably pretty well connected. So, you know, he's completely divorced from that. He's immune from the consequences of his decisions as a central planner. And I would say the the last example of that is this, uh, this gradual government control over commercial banking. So if you look at it uh, in the real estate market, where in the U.S. housing market, where inflation is out of control, that's mostly because the Federal Reserve is buying $40 billion a month in mortgage-backed securities, the bulk of which are uh, originated or secured or um, uh, secured by government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So the government has taken over the housing industry. And what do you get? You get unaffordable mm-hmm. housing. And I, there was a great point made about that by Russell Napier, the, uh, the um, Scottish economist who who some people may know. And Russell basically said, that's really what, that's why you're going to get 4% inflation per year for the next 10 years is the government is more and more involved in the commercial banking industry mm. in guaranteeing commercial loans. So, you know, when you boil all of that down to what it means for investors, it means uh, inflation is going to be higher than you expect. It might not be hyperinflation, 
but uh, you have to figure out how to deal with that problem, whether you deal with it through real estate mm-hmm. or equities, or you you say, okay, bond yields are going to be capped, so maybe I should buy gold. All of those things are in the mix. And in the meantime, there's a huge social political context to this because the feds have screwed with the value of money. Right. And you mentioned in your uh, in your latest uh, communique, Dan, that uh, two of many examples that uh, that we could probably cite around the world, uh, including my home country of Argentina, as I mentioned earlier, but you, you cited both Cuba and South Africa as very real and present examples of what happens when you get uh, falling real wages and rapidly, in some cases, rising real prices. And I, I, I'm just... I'm not sure that we've that we've had that here in in the U.S. since maybe back in the '70s, would you say, or you know, when, shortly after the after the dollar was was decoupled uh, ultimately from gold. But when when would we have to go back uh, in the U.S. to find inflation like the kind that we're likely to see uh, in the near future? I think that's when, and the the key difference back then is that wages hadn't begun a secular stagnation where mm. they they were flat and then declined in real terms. So the price level jumped in the 1970s once the dollar was was cut off from gold, the Arab oil, uh, oil embargo. So all of a sudden you saw a huge shift in the price level. And Paul Volcker dealt with that by raising interest rates. Now you, you're going to get a jump in the price level, but the, the, the variable is that the government and the central bank can't afford higher interest rates. So you're going to get, uh, for a while, you, you might even get rising wages. And this, this is weird about it, because this is what could be good for the middle class, or it might appear good for a while, is you're going to get 4 to 5% inflation a year, which might correlate into some rising wages, because you know eventually the STEMI support for unemployment is going to be exhausted. And or employers are going to have to raise wages to lure people back into the workforce. So you could borrow, a thir- you know, you get a 30-year mortgage at under 3%. And even though house prices are going through the roof, your borrowing cost as, as a percentage of your uh, disposable income might, might not look huge. And you might feel reassured that because your wages are rising faster. I think once people, once savers, the people who have money, once they realize that bond yields are not going to be allowed to rise through financial repression, then then you'll start to see a move in gold. But I don't know when that'll be. Yeah, it's interesting that um, <clears throat> it's interesting what you say about maybe there being a short term, or at least appearing to be a short term, uh, shoring up of the middle class with with what might look like uh, temporarily rising wages. Uh, and I've seen real, you know in real time and firsthand as I've traveled around the country a little bit in the last uh, couple of months here, just, you know, you'll see help wanted signs in, in, in every second window. I mean, go out to, out to a, uh, a city like San Antonio, uh, which I was in a couple of weeks ago and, you know, everywhere from sort of middle, uh, middle lane restaurants um, to, to some of the higher end places all the way down to McDonald's. I remember I, I waited almost an hour for my uh, allegedly fast food at McDonald's uh, out there. They were just hopelessly understaffed. You know, they obviously had to peel back during the COVID restrictions and they were actually handing out flyers with your 
you know, my daughter's happy meal. <laughs> she's, she's six. So she's too young to go uh, work at McDonald's yet, but it was advertising, um, that they were going to be paying, I forget exactly what it was, but something like a couple of bucks above the average, uh, above the minimum wage They were going to put, um, I think it was three or $4,000 towards, uh, offsetting your, uh, cost of college per year. And they would, you know, give you half price food for friends and family. I mean, it was all this, all this kind of stuff that I just hadn't seen before, but it does look like in the short term, we might see, um, a rise of, of, uh, of wages, but I can't imagine that's going to keep up with, with the prices as we're seeing them. I mean, you mentioned both the, uh, the PPI and the CPI, the producer price index and the consumer price index respectively, uh, in your, in your recent post. And I mean, we're really rocketing ahead at levels that we haven't seen now for, I think over a decade, um, yeah, and that's really the big question now is the policymakers are convinced or are publicly sticking to the line that this inflation is what they call transitory and there's no need to remove what they call an accommodative monetary policy. And uh, so it's uh, that's why I use the rocket metaphor or mm. we're kind of in stage two where prices have left the earth but we're still in the earth's gravity well, and they haven't gotten completely out of control. And, um, you know, history shows that the central bankers are just completely inept in understanding the forces that they've unleashed or vastly overestimate their ability to manage those forces. Mm. So that's why my level of concern um, uh, went up this week uh, for those reasons. But you're right. You know, same thing out here. There are, um, hospitality locations, resorts, hotels that are offering to fly people out to pay their relocation costs uh, to come work. Wow. And, you know, those are industries where the labor can't be automated yet. And I think mm-hmm. that's probably a, a big structural factor is you still need the proverbial boots on the ground in some businesses. You've got, you know, machines don't scoop ice cream and make fries yet. Not right. in towns like not not in towns like this. Uh, so I think that'll be interesting. You know, if if you and I are right, or if the uh, you know the rationalists and the the uh, economists who believe that people are motivated by self interest in improving their own life, at a certain point, people who are unemployed or who are getting unemployment benefits will say, "I can actually make more if I go back to work." What's the variable is? Are we so late and decadent in the American experiment? that people have internalized this belief that, well, why should I have to work for anything if mm. they can just mail me a check? And, and that's, that's the sociological aspect of this that, that's, that's also at play. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a very interesting one too, because I think uh, there, are, there are two coming aparts here. And it's, as you said before, it's the people who, uh, you know, whose wealth is largely tied up in, in financial assets and who, who have enough of a cushion that, uh, I think you put it, you know, they're not worrying about the price of a T-bone at Delmonico's. They're worrying about if they can get a reservation. There's those people. Um, and, it, you know, I, I looked around a, a restaurant in Chicago just earlier this last week, and it was a Tuesday night and it was buzzing. And I don't know if it was just because I'd been on the architectural, you know, the river architecture tour earlier that day, but it looked to me like the roaring 20s. You know, there was champagne flowing. There was, uh, you know, there was a, a lot of money being spent. And I looked around and thought, 
wow, this does seem like the Roaring Twenties, but you know, we have to remember that at the end of the Roaring Twenties <laughs> came. I mean, there's a reason why uh, you know there are no there are no skyscrapers from between 1929 and 1940 uh, dotting the Chicago skyline. And it's because we had a 10 year depression, uh, and so there are just there are all the vacant holes in the skyline, but it, it does seem that there's a big coming apart between the people that are pouring that champagne and lap, lap, lapping it up on the one hand. Um, and those, um, you know, who are, who are watching prices just kind of, uh, rocket away from, from where they are. And, uh, I think the, I mean, there's a, there's a timing issue there, uh, you know, when that, when that all comes apart, but there's also, as you mentioned, those, uh, those socioeconomic or sociological uh, fallouts where, you know, where we, we look around and start to think, okay, the, the, you know, people aren't just going to just put up with prices that rise beyond their level of comfort forever. Pe- people get desperate. And when they get desperate, they do, uh, unfortunately, they're, they're forced to do desperate things oftentimes. Well, that's really, those are the two ends of it because at one level, you know, your food, your housing, uh, the roof over your head and your energy costs, whether it's your car or in the winter, you know, your heating costs, those are essentially fixed costs for a household, for a family, for anyone. And, you know, if those are rising and they, they consume so much of your discretionary income that you know, there's nothing left or, or you have to borrow to, to pay those costs, then you have a, a system that's broken for those people. And on the other end, you have people who can finance their lifestyle by borrowing against the value of their financial assets. So they don't really even need to generate income anymore, which you can't do because the dividend yield on the S&P 500 is, is, uh, is very low. And uh, as a saver, you don't make any money on interest for your savings and government bonds in real terms are garbage. So what there was a great article in the, in the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal that showed how you know, people in that top 10% or top 1%, the ones who've added $30 trillion to their net worth since since the financial crisis, they've been able, they can just borrow on the value of those assets and, and live off that money. They get loans from right. uh, from banks on those. And so what's the what's the limiting factor for that? It's the value of those assets. If right. the value of those assets <laughs> falls, you can't borrow against them. And you know, I think this is the dilemma the, the Fed is in now is that a lot of consumption is financed through low interest rates and on the perception of rising net worth. So if, if that net worth, which is driven by rising house prices and rising stock prices falls the way it did in 2007 by almost $7 trillion just in the housing market, and let's say it falls by $10 trillion, let's say it's $15 trillion fall, well, the Fed has no idea what happens to consumption. It has no idea what happens to employment and no idea what happens to business investment. And so that's why Powell basically just said, we're, we're not going to do anything different. We're just going to, we're just going to keep on keeping on. And uh, in the meantime, if you can order a, another bottle of champagne, now is probably a good time to do it. <laughs> so just thinking about all this, you, uh, there was one line in your uh, in your in your latest communique that kind of stood out to me, and 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 as I was thinking of different different ways that this might play out, and I had the, you know, the 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 nineteen twenties history may not may not uh, repeat, but it rhymes kind of metaphor in my head with 
um, you know, with the roaring 20s and then the big crash at the end. And, and you had written, uh, and I'll read it out just here. It says, uh, you wrote, the only way out of much higher inflation this time next year is a big economic bust between now and then. Uh, is there anything on the horizon? You, you mentioned the something like the Delta variant. Is there, is there something that you can foresee that uh, that might precipitate just that kind of bust? Oh, gosh, I, if I... Well, I will definitely tell you when I know, but I mean, all we really know is <laughs> is what hap- what has happened in the past, and we, we know that valuations are not uh, they're not a regulating factor. Stocks can become much more expensive. They're very expensive now, historically speaking, but the, what's driving that is liquidity. So as long as the liquidity remains abundant, then the valuations uh, stay high. So in the past, what's happened? Well, normally you've seen a default of some sort by a highly leveraged corporate borrower or an obscure player who plays a systemically important role in the financial system, like a clearinghouse or a bank or some, something that we that you don't read about until somebody like Michael Lewis writes a book about it later. And, and you go, mm-hmm. how did we miss that? Right. And then, you know, there are the exogenous factors, um, which are uh, social and political upheaval that either manifest themselves as revolutions and instability or, uh, or which we haven't seen a lot of, uh, as armed conflict. And, you know, we've seen that at a regional level. So right now, you know, the U S interestingly enough has vacated Bagram air, air base in, in Afghanistan and has announced its intention to vacate all its combat personnel from Iraq. So, to the neocons and the warmongers and the war party in Washington, that means there's a power vacuum that's been created and it's going to lead to even worse Middle East instability if that was possible. Uh, so there's that old there's that old chestnut. But I think Latin America is quite interesting now and you'd have more to say about that than, than I would. But uh, Cuba's what's happening in Cuba, it puts uh, American socialists and leftists and progressives in a really difficult spot because the failure there is a failure of central planning. It's not the fault of the embargoes. They would like to blame it on bad government rather than way too much government. But, um, you know, you've got the convergence of, and, and Joel, at the same time, you have the convergence of these ham-fisted, but but like iron-fisted as well, lockdown measures that just, they just keep coming back to and saying, yeah. we just need, you know, and it's nowhere is this worse than Australia, unfortunately. And, you know, Australia is not like Cuba, but it's, uh, it is just shocking to me how it goes from bad to worse in Australia week after week from one state to the next. And the political leaders just double down on telling people if the lockdowns fail, it's your fault, not ours. And, the lockdowns will continue until morale improves. It's it's just shocking. I don't know what you think about it. Oh yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. I mean, you know, as you know, I have I know you have friends there, uh, and, and and I have obviously friends and family there, and it's you know I I I, I have to spare myself from reading the headlines uh, daily because it's just it's so depressing. But um, but you know, just yesterday I saw, for example, that uh, Victoria is now teetering on the edge of a sixth lockdown, uh, if you can believe that, because they recorded seven cases, which, you know, not seven outbreaks or seven, you know, epicenters or seven new strains or se- or even seven deaths, just seven people who tested positive, uh, you know, in an, in an unreliable test uh, to begin with. So yeah, it's, it's, 
it's really ridiculous. And one thing that I do notice when I speak to, uh, you know, friends back home in Australia is the way that language changes. Um, and you and I have spoken about this before, and I've spoken about it on this show with Chris Mayer before as well, that, um, that as Mayer's uh, general semantics hero, uh, Alfred Krasivsky, said he who controls the signs controls us and if you can control the signs you can control the language and the conversation then you can really get people to kind of go along with whatever you want and when i do speak to to people back home uh be it you know via email correspondence or messaging or or you know face to face so to speak it's there's a whole language game that's changed there and there are all these new, uh, this new nomenclature, this new terminology that we here in the United States who are, you know, traveling around or going about our lives largely now um, are, are just not, we're just not operating on that same, with that same language. So for example, I'll hear things like, um, um, like breakout or uh, variant strain or um, there was one the other day which was an oh, I can't, I've got to think of the word for it now it's a something site I'll think of it in a second but it's a it's it's a site that somebody has been at who, who subsequently tested positive for COVID and then the track and trace apps will send everybody who had been at that site an, an exposure site, pardon me, that's what it was called, an exposure site. So if you had been at this exposure site within a two-hour window of around the time that that person who subsequently tested positive for COVID was at, then you get a message on your phone instructing you to take private transport back to your place of residence or care, self-quarantine for 14 days, even after you test negative for the uh, you know, even after you, you have a, a negative COVID test, you have to get a personal shopper. I know people that for whom this has been the case. And it's just an, you know, just to be mired in that language of constantly looking at clusters and outbursts and red tiered, you know, um, red zones and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's I think the, 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 the poor people there in Australia are really having a tough time of it, but it just does go to show, uh, this has been a bit of a rant here, obviously something I'm kind of passionate about, but um, it does just go to show how quickly you can, you know, one can go from a, the perception of a free and open and pluralistic and democratic uh, political system to full scale monitoring surveillance state, um, you know, within, within the matter of, of a few months, or in this case, barely a year. Uh, and, and that slide is precipitous. And it, it takes somebody outside of, of that arena to see, I think, how just how ridiculous it is. But yeah, it's very, very upsetting. Yeah, well, Gus, there's a lot there. I mean, I, I was just thinking of Robert Heinlein's book, The Moon, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And the main mm. character, whose name is Manny Emmanuel. But he's, he speaks with an Australian accent. And what's interesting is it, all those things are connected, vocabulary and language and thought, that the words you use uh, or the words that you are available to be used in some way um, determine how you're able to think about things. And, uh, you know, full discussion of that is beyond the, the, my expertise or this this podcast. But, I you know, in Australia, I always noticed when I moved down there that you, you had um, a really – common vocabulary where people would use them to 
to describe things. So football players would say that stands us in good stead. We worked really hard. So that stands us in good stead for next week. <laughs> or you, you know, here you use phrases like fair income, mate, fair go, hard yak equals work, tall poppies are people who equal. So, so ideas are reduced to phrases, but what's happened under on COVID is that the ideas that are acceptable to in public discourse have now been, um, have been expressed in technocratic medical political phrases that it's really the vocabulary of a very narrow elite. So the whole discourse is now controlled by a vocabulary whose goal is to reinforce the authority of the people using that language. And so now we use that language. We talk about, you know, uh, variants of concern and exposure sites, which used to just be strip clubs. And now they're places <laughs> where you know, you, 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 your life could be in danger. So, uh, so it, and it all becomes even more dangerous because they, the goal is to say is to make it less convenient for people to live freely. If that means testing them more or demanding that they be vaccinated or for Daniel Andrews to do another snap lockdown, because another phrase, we, you got to go fast. You got to go early and you got to go hard, blah, 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 man. I was, it's just, just so exasperating to see what's happening and then see within that closed political verbal media ecosystem that it's working perfectly as an experiment in mass psychological manipulation of fear. Yeah, it's, you, I couldn't have said it better, mate. It's it's uh, it's it's very disheartening. But I think it, it, you know, if we take anything away from it, it's that uh, it's that we do have to constantly be on guard against this kind of stuff. Because, you know, to, to borrow another one of those stock phrases, if you give a, a, a politician an inch, they they will take that proverbial mile. And you know, it's they'll take your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <they'll, laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, think of think of people who are who have saved up their whole life for their uh, retirement and who are now sitting down awaiting their next isolation command or their next uh, pending lockdown, and for whom. You know, the idea of, of jetting off to some exotic locale that they've worked their whole life to save up for is just, you know, it's a, it's a mirage on the horizon at best. Um, and so, yes, in a very real and meaningful sense, this is stealing people's most valuable and irreplaceable um, asset away from them, which is, which is their time. And their freedom. Um, so- yeah, I, I'd say the fight is on. I think that's a good, good sentiment to close on because we don't want to be overly negative but i think the uh, your situational awareness of not only what's happening in financial markets but but what's happening um with this cultural institutional wide trend towards centralization that determines wh- where you should be where your money should be and uh, what wh- where the biggest threats are and then from time to time what 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 some of the opportunities are as well but yeah my my big takeaway this week was Wow, uh, they're coming. They're doubling down on all of this stuff, and uh, financially, the threats were serious enough. But you've got to be aware of your surroundings. And even though these things take months and sometimes years to play out, it is happening to us right now in our lives. So these are. That's why we go back and look at other historical examples to figure out, you know, what's the best way to to stay wealthy to preserve what you have and to maintain your freedom of action, your independence and your ability to take care of the people that you love. 
Well, I couldn't think of a better note to end on, Dan. Mate, thanks so much. Look forward to catching up again soon. Stay safe and free in the meantime. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.